Welcome to the History of European Theatre Podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 27, Early Rome, Theatre Gets Mobile. Over the last two episodes, I've taken you through a quick view of Roman history so that we can have a framework in which to talk about the Roman theatre. Now that we're ready to get stuck into some detail, I thought it best to start with the Roman theatre buildings and look at how they developed into what was to become a very particular style. Put simply, the Roman theatre operated in three different stages – the mobile theatre, the temporary theatre and the permanent theatre. Of course, these phases were not distinct and there was a lot of overlap between them with just a few key dates that we can pin to particular developments. This was a long progression from the Etruscan period with the initial development of theatre in the region through to the first permanent theatre being constructed in 55 BCE. So I'm going to split the narrative across two podcast episodes. For now, I want to take you from those early days of the Roman theatre up to 55 BC and look at the mobile and the temporary theatre styles. A lot of the information that we have about the theatre comes from three Roman sources – the historian Livy, the soldier, lawyer and author Pliny the Elder, and the statesman and scholar Cicero. Marcus Tullius Cicero is arguably the most influential writer of the three. He was born in 106 BCE, and the majority of the surviving Latin literature from the period up to his death in 42 BCE comes from his hand. In his time, he was a great orator, philosopher and politician, and served as consul in 63 BCE, when he tried to uphold the moral principles of the Republic against a tide of political instability that preceded the creation of the Roman Empire. It's his political activities that are of greatest interest in general Roman history, as he was active during the rule of Julius Caesar and opposed Mark Antony. But it's his time as consul that impacts on the progression of theatre through the late Republic. Titus Livius is most interesting to us as a historian. He was born about 60 BCE in a wealthy region of northern Italy, and presumably to a wealthy family, as there's no reference to him working in his lifetime other than Seneca mentioning that he was a philosopher and orator, and the fact that he wrote an extensive history of the Roman Empire, covering the period from the founding of the city to the death of Augustus, which is his only surviving work there is a hint that he steered a careful course through the deadly politics of the time, managing to author a glowing panegyric for Pompey while remaining a friend of Augustus. He left Rome after Augustus's death, perhaps finding Tiberius was not such an accommodating emperor, and he died in Padua in about 15 CE. His history has many inaccuracies and conflicting statements, but it has nevertheless remained a primary source for later historians pretty much since the day it was published. Gaius Plinius Secundus, known as Pliny the Elder to distinguish him from his son, was born in 23 or 24 CE and was writing in the middle of the 1st century CE. He was from a good family and was a successful junior officer in the army before taking up a law practice in Rome. He survived the chaotic reign of Nero by staying out of the limelight and then became a favourite of the new emperor Vespasian, providing legal services for the new aspiring dynasty. Throughout his life, he was a prolific author, but it's his last work that provides us with details about theatrical activity. The Natural History is a 37-book encyclopaedia covering many subjects that became the model for future works of a similar nature. The work was largely completed by 77 CE, when the first volumes were presented to the emperor. Pliny was to die two years later in the eruption of Vesuvius that buried the towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum. 
At the time, he was fleet commander for the Roman navy and saw the eruption from across the Bay of Naples. While organising galleys for an evacuation effort, he received a request from a senator for rescue and went to Pompeii in a smaller, faster ship. Although his party got to Pompeii, they became trapped on land by unfavourable winds and had to wait for a change in the weather. By now the eruption was in full flow and pumice and hot ash were falling like rain. Pliny died there, either from the effects of poisonous gas or from a heart attack. He was overweight and asthmatic, so the latter is not unlikely, in the no doubt stressful situation that would have challenged a younger, fitter man. Because of the particular circumstances, we have the rarity of a precise date of death for Pliny. 25th of August, 79 CE. The theatrical references in his encyclopaedia are extremely valuable to us, but he, like Livy, was already looking back two centuries or more, so the reliability of dates he gives as facts are questionable. Having said that, one of his references is to the very beginnings of theatre in Rome, that story about the Etruscans being invited to the games during the season of plague. As you'll remember from the two introductory episodes, theatre in Rome started in the Etruscan period, with poetry recited to movement and music being augmented with joking between the locals, who soon took up the art, copying the style of the Etruscans. There's no evidence for how these entertainments were staged, other than Pliny says they were part of the broader game staged to placate the gods. The entertainments then became part of the games held regularly in the Circus Maximus, when a temporary stage was erected in the circus for that purpose. The Circus Maximus was a venue that could hold up to 150,000 people, who were there primarily for chariot races, animal baiting and gladiatorial fights. The theatrical elements were merely an interlude, but evidently popular. At some point, the fledgling theatre moved out of the circus and into the city spaces. The exact reason and timing for this isn't known, but it was probably during the Etruscan period. It's in Etruscan tomb paintings that we see images of temporary wooden stages, suggesting that this form was used from quite early on. The images show a raised stage with steps going down to the ground level. When the move out of the circus came, it seems it was just a question of lifting the concept of the wooden stage out of the circus and putting it into other city locations. So the location may have changed, but almost all Roman theatre remained as part of the festivals built around the religious celebrations. As Roman society developed its own identity, the city grew and the number of festival days increased and became public holidays. Festivals were held not only for traditional religious festivals, but also for memorial days for the dead, triumphs for military success and other celebrations. Entertainments on temporary stages remained part of the festivals, but prior to 55 BCE permanent theatre buildings were not permitted. The official objection was made on moral grounds to guard against the perceived corrupting influence of the theatre, but in reality it was probably more for a concern with the potential for sedition and gathered crowds turning into mobs that drove the ban. But just temporary and mobile was not a serious problem. To present theatre, all that was needed was an open and ideally raised space, room for an audience and permission. The performances were tolerated and licensed, and it suggested that they took place in front of temples or other public monuments and spaces related to the deity of the festival that was being honoured. The presentations, and I'm struggling to think of them as plays yet, were still comic sketches with a high reliance on music and dance. But later, sometimes in the first half of the 3rd century BCE, more obviously plot-driven plays largely based on translation of Greek plays had developed. 
a feat credited to Livius Andronicus, who I mentioned in the last episode. Whatever the exact path of development was, a descriptive vocabulary around the performance art developed, so there must have been some commonality in the way performances were presented, despite the lack of a fixed location. Within the performance space, wherever that was, the Romans named different areas. Cavia for the audience area, be that stood or seated. Scania, for the stage area. Scania fronds, for the stage backdrop. And prosemium, for the space in front of the backdrop. These terms were not quite as formalised as that sounds, with the Scania and the prosemium being referred to interchangeably on occasions. Notwithstanding that complication, it seems that whatever space was being used, these distinct areas could be defined and referred to meaningfully by the practitioners, even though from site to site the nature of the available space could vary. As we still find, innovation goes hand in hand with necessity and constraints can often be turned to an advantage. I like to think the early Roman players were an endlessly innovative lot who had the basic desire to perform to a crowd whatever it took to make that happen. And we have to remember that temporary doesn't mean small scale. Some Roman temples have large areas devoted to them, and there have been estimates that audience sizes of up to 1,300 people would have been possible given the space at the foot of some temple steps or the larger plazas. At the time of Plautus and Terence, so that's roughly 250 to 160 BCE, theatre was still functioning in this temporary state, so all of their plays would have been performed in different locations across the city and still linked to the god or goddess of the festival. These sites could have included the Forum itself, which was the heart of the city from the earliest days. Initially a marketplace, it developed into the centre for governmental, religious and political activity, becoming surrounded by buildings supporting those functions. The important temples of Saturn and Castor were built near the plaza in the 5th century BCE, and by the Republican period there was already a long tradition of public speaking and political activity there. In 184 BCE, a large basilica, a long multi-purpose public hall, was added and over the next 20 years, two more were built along the sides of the plaza. By about 150 BCE, the Forum had become the focal point of the city, with many public events, including games, gladiatorial fights and funerals being held there. The development of the Forum into more than just a market was in its earliest stages in Plautus's time, but the text of one of his plays suggests that it was performed there. Exact dating of this play, Curculio, or The Weevil, is difficult, which is a common problem with the Roman plays, but references to that in the text suggest it was first performed about 193 BCE. In the play, one character effectively gives a guided tour of the Forum, mentioning the fish market, the shrine of Venus, the colonnade of bankers' shops, the temple of Castor, and other significant features. The play is set in Epidurus in Greece, but it seems that for comic effect, Plautus was happy to acknowledge the actual site of the performance. It's not clear when the temporary stages became more than just a wooden platform, but the works of Plautus and Terence suggest that in their time the design was still in a rudimentary stage. There's a suggestion that the stages had become very long compared to their depth, with some scholars suggesting they could have been as much as 120 feet long. There are text references to characters appearing from afar in some plays, but other than this, I've not been able to find any more substantive evidence presented to support that assertion. Another possibility is that the typical stage was no longer a simple platform, and that a wooden hut was added behind the stage for costume changes. 
Some references suggest that the stage may also have been covered with a wooden roof, but to me this seems quite speculative and certainly not something we can now see as a clear path of development on a timeline. Since the theatre came out of the Circus Maximus, accommodations for the audience had been very limited. Possibly this reflects the authorities' desire to discourage theatre. Why make sure everyone was comfortable while they watched any immoralities or heard disruptive ideas that may be being presented? For most of the Republican era, the audience simply gathered around the stage in whatever configuration the site allowed. Although organised seating wasn't allowed, it's probably safe to assume that individuals brought along a seat or a stool with them if they didn't like the idea of standing, squatting or sitting on the ground. There was also a perception in Roman society that a comfort like sitting down was for the effete Greeks and the strength of the Roman character made standing acceptable, even a virtue. In later years, it's likely that some benches were allowed for the upper classes. Wealth didn't come into it, as the attendance at the festivals was free and open to all. Even slaves were allowed to attend, assuming their masters gave them permission, although it's likely they had to stand at the back, just behind the women. Yes, women could attend, but proximity to the stage was a male prerogative. I think that the combination of free attendance for all classes and the public nature of the sites must have kept theatre from developing any sort of subtlety in performance style and promoted the path to farce and comedy that it took. It may be easy to attract a large crowd to a free event, but keeping their attention on the busy festival day was probably another matter. On the holiday days, the sites would have been busy with people out for the day, but not specifically out for the theatre. One can imagine the edges of the gathered audience constantly changing as people joined while others lost interest and left, with some pausing for just a few moments before passing on to another event. It's not insignificant that many of the plays start with a sort of prologue where a character calls for a bit of quiet, asking for babies to be silenced and better still to be left at home with the nurse next time, and the women to stop their chatter. What grabs the attention better than a joke, some banter with the crowd and a bit of music and dancing? In this kind of situation, with plenty of other distractions all around, there's probably not a lot of point launching into a serious piece where concentration is required for an extended period. It's easy to see why farcical comedy became the order of the day for the Romans. It wasn't until the 1st century BCE that the magistrates at the festivals began to allow dedicated structures for theatre. If that decision followed the usual pattern of magistrates' behaviour, it suggests that there was a public desire for dedicated buildings and the magistrates were able to show off their generosity and curry some favour with the populace by providing them. Built of wood, they not only provided a stage, but the backdrop behind it and a semicircle of audience space in front. The exact nature of the backdrop of the stage isn't clear, but there are references to plain and coloured backdrops, and then to a more solid version, which included columns and functioning doors. The frustration for us is that they were by their nature temporary, and wood leaves only archaeological records in very particular circumstances that usually involve bogs and a particular soil type as a means of preservation. So we only have descriptions to go on, and these are lacking until the structures got larger and more elaborate as time progressed. You'll remember mention of the theatres built in 145 and 150 BCE from the introductory episodes, which were both part of this trend to build bigger and more ornate, but still wooden and temporary theatres. But they came towards the latter part of a long period of development. With the emergence of the more grandiose but still temporary theatre, it's a good point to consider why the Romans went down this route. 
they would have been aware of the Greek permanent stone-built theatres from early on, given traders were travelling between Roman parts of Greece and then even more intimate with them once the conquest of Greece was complete. There's evidence on Sicily and at other sites in Magna Graecia of Roman repair and rebuilding of Greek theatres. So why not follow this pattern in Roman theatre building? The Greek sites where we have evidence of Roman activity are all stone theatres built into the natural contours of the land with, in some cases, additional augmentation to increase the size of the auditorium. They include the typical high stage and reduced orchestra space of the later Greek period. In the dominant new comedy genre of the time, the chorus was much reduced in size and no longer the conduit between the audience and the actors that it had been. In fact, the chorus, whose role was now to provide interlude entertainment rather than commentary on the action of the play, had become part of the framing device to enhance distancing between the audience and the action of the play. So, although the Romans saw the benefit in enhancing and repairing existing structures, they did not see the need to build their own copies in Rome. As we all know, the Romans were great builders, so it's certainly not a question of any lack of capacity or capability. So presumably it was one of perceived need and the lack of any commercial benefit in embarking on such a major project, with the city's reluctance to allow permanent theatres as the first significant hurdle to overcome. The Romans would also have been aware of the simpler staging from the rural traditions in the Hellenised parts of Italy. As I mentioned earlier, we see these images on Etruscan vases and maybe the Romans had more evidence than that. And what we can see there are temporary wooden stages that used a decorated backdrop with two rear doors for entrances and exits, steps on either side of the stage to an audience area and a roof over the stage. This suggests more interaction between actor and audience, perhaps itself representing the more improvisational style than was seen in the later Greek traditions but something that is closer to the developed theatre in Rome, designed for comic entertainment rather than anything more serious. With the Roman theatre evolving from these two comic traditions, the rural improvisation and Greek new comedy, the path of least resistance, the cheapest option for an art form in its developing stages, is to more closely copy the temporary stage of the rural comedy. I would suggest that the only essential for Roman comedy is the ability for multiple entrances and exits, on which much of the farcical comedy is based. The theatre backdrop in early theatre included three functioning doors, and there was a side exit on each side of the stage, so five entrance and exit options in total. Greek middle and new comedy had already started to use the concept of the stage representing spaces in front of houses, so Roman adaptation of these plays also fitted to the three-door backdrop and street setting. The exact setting for the plays is often described in the opening lines, so no descriptive scenery was required. With that, as the basic multi-purpose set, different plays could be presented on the same set. There is some slight textual evidence that a roof over the stage doors could be accessed from inside, giving an opportunity for some stage business from above, and the columns between the doors would give some ability for characters to conceal themselves and overhear important conversations, another important element of Greek new comedy and the Roman form. The texts also tell us that conventions arose to assist the narratives of these plays that rely on unseen movement of characters from door to door. There's often use of an assumed passage behind the doors, so behind the unseen house interiors, allowing the characters to exit through one door and re-enter through another. 
The formalising of the Roman stage set into this form would have then become accelerated once permanent structures were allowed. And I'll look at the stage and the backdrop of the Roman theatre in more detail in the context of the permanent theatres in future episodes. So it seems reasonable, although never provable, that the Romans never saw the need to embrace the Greek permanent stone model, because the sort of theatre they favoured didn't require it. No orchestra area is needed for a chorus, and no large auditorium just for theatre. Rome had the Forum and the Circus Maximus for large meetings, which in any case didn't happen with the frequency that they did in ancient Athens. The elements of theatre they did inherit from the Greeks had already moved to multiple character comedy and had no need for earlier features like the roof of for the gods and the stage machinery. The end of the Second Punic War in 201 BCE marked the start of a period of great social change in Rome that resulted in tensions between the classes in the city. Part of the reaction to this ongoing unrest was for politicians like Cato to introduce repressive measures that attempted to realign public morals away from the foreign and extravagant habits that he and others like him believed had developed to harm society. Theatre fell squarely into this category, not least because of the potential for political comment and sedition in the theatre that still niggled at the leadership. In 115 BCE, magistrates even went as far as banning actors from the city as part of a moral clean-up, although the ban was either ineffective or quickly reversed. The details aren't clear. The degree of the curtailment of theatrical activity varied through the years, depending on the ebb and flow of the moral climate. But theatre and the building of temporary venues never quite stopped, some of which were state-funded, but it probably did postpone the building of the first permanent theatre. Given the fractious state of Roman politics at the time, the reluctance to create a new space where large crowds could gather is perhaps understandable. Despite these curtailments, by the time of Plautus and Terence, Roman theatre seems to have developed some confidence about itself. Roman Latin theatre was toured to festivals in the Greek islands and the Hellenised areas of the mainland. One such tour to the historic heart at Delos is particularly noted. In turn, Greek theatre was brought to Rome in 186 and 167 BCE for a 10-day festival. It's noted of these that they required the inclusion of an orchestra area in the theatre construction. In Rome, a taste for public displays of extravagance revived and the temporary theatres became more ornate and luxurious as those sponsoring events looked to display their wealth and importance. In 194 BCE, the magistrates acquiesced to a request from the older Scipio and introduced special seating for the senators, implying that this was the first time such class distinction had been made in an audience in Rome since the theatre buildings were introduced. So, the rise of the temporary theatre continued in stops and starts, depending on the current public mood, through the 1st century BCE. By then, the decoration of theatres and the use of scenery on stage had also developed further. And just to reiterate, although we don't have designs for these temporary theatres, the descriptions we do have speak to structures built of wood that included a stage and a backdrop and a seating area, and later actual seats for the audience of hundreds if not thousands of people. These were considerable structures, presumably built at considerable cost to the state through festival sponsorship and to the individuals who added to the state coffers. As time passed, we have a few mentions of particular improvements and embellishments that must have been particularly special for the later writers to have noted them. Pliny records that in 99 BCE, Claudius Pulcher included a multicoloured painted backdrop in a theatre. 
This backdrop imitated architectural features so well that birds were seen trying to land on the painted images of roof tiles. In 69 BCE, Quinius Latatius Catullus presided over games held to celebrate the rededication of the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill. In the theatre constructed for the event, he added a multicoloured linen roof that stretched over the audience, giving them both shade and something interesting to look at. Which is an interesting comment, as one would have hoped that the action on the stage was what was keeping their interest, not the fancy new sunshade. In 68 BCE, a law was passed allowing for those of the equestrian class to also have access to the first 14 rows of seating that had previously been reserved for only senators. Clearly theatre was still being enjoyed by the upper classes as well as the plebs, and they wanted to ensure their own comfort. The mention of the realistic backdrop brings us to the vexed question as to when and to what extent painted scenery was introduced to Roman theatre. You'll remember that suggestions that a painted scenery was used in theatre go back as far as Sophocles centuries earlier, although the point is not universally accepted. There is some evidence that painted wooden boards were used in later Hellenistic theatres and therefore were likely to be known to the Romans. Livy records that in 99 BCE, movable panels with naturalistic scenes painted on them were used in the theatre, giving us some further evidence that by this time scene painting was in a developed state. There is further mention that in 79 BCE, painted panels using architectural perspective drawings were being used to give the illusion of solid buildings. Another reference suggests that the panels were arranged so that they formed a three-sided box that could be rotated to effect a scene change. So it seems likely that through the 2nd and 3rd centuries BCE there was an art of background scenery painting developing and it may have started even earlier than that, another unknowable from the distant past. In his account of theatre architecture, Vitruvius speaks of temporary theatres with intricate architectural features that were further augmented with painted embellishments. In his account, the effects were so realistic that there was concern at the degree to which theatre was able to deceive the audience and remove them from reality. For some in Rome, this was part of the immorality of the theatre, although Vitruvius himself approved of the perspective painting, as long as it depicted objects from reality. So we get a sense of the stage setting becoming somewhat more naturalistic and flexible in the late Republic period, but any move to permanency for the building itself was still resisted, and that was probably due to the continued restless behaviour of the citizens that was the prelude to the end of the Republic. The pinnacle of temporary theatre adornment came in 58 BCE. Pliny looks back to describe a very grand version of the form in his encyclopaedia. In gushing terms, he says that the magistrate Marcus Saccurus made the grandest theatre ever constructed, even though it was only for temporary use. This theatre was just one part of the public games he was responsible for that were on a scale not seen before in Rome. Exotic animals previously unknown to the Romans were exhibited in the circus and a huge artificial lake was constructed so that crocodiles and hippopotami could be displayed. The theatre constructed for the games had similarly grand ambitions. It was built on three storeys, the lower part made of marble, the middle of glass and the upper part of gilded wood. The structure needed 360 columns for support, those on the lower part being 38 feet high. There was room for 80,000 spectators. The theatre was ornamented by 3,000 bronze statues, paintings and gold-embroidered fabrics. 
This seems a huge effort for a temporary structure, and I would have said that the expense was unimaginable, except that Pliny also tells us that many of the fixtures and fittings were considered so valuable that when the theatre was taken down, many were removed to Marcus Securus's villa. When the villa was later burned down by angry slaves, the loss was estimated at 30 million sesterci. There may be a good deal of exaggeration contained in that description, but it's undoubtedly a huge sum of money and gives us a good illustration of just how large and sumptuously decorated these temporary theatres could be. If Pliny is to be believed, it really is difficult to imagine just how over-the-top that temporary theatre was, but it does mark the point where we can leave the temporary theatre. They continued to be built and used and taken down, but in a few years would be joined by the first permanent theatre. The last specific mention of a temporary theatre is from the time of Claudius, who ruled in 41-54 to CE, and they may well have continued to be used well beyond that date. The development of theatre in the pre-Christian era happened in the shadow of state resistance, and the mobile and temporary theatre were a means of ensuring its survival. The basic instinct to mime, storytell and entertain was never completely squashed. Ultimately, that resistance to the art was based on Rome's political nature. The games, and by extension the theatre, were recreational and religious events, but they were also driven by the political ambitions of the magistrates, censors and senators who supported them. The organising magistrates were usually men towards the beginning of their climb up the Roman political ladder, and that was a ladder that was very structured, and demanded that the offices were held in the correct order and given a clear progression from one to the next. Impress as an organising magistrate of a festival one year, and you were pretty much guaranteed to move to the following position the next. Encouraged to go one better, the magistrates would often add to the state funding with their own funds and could make demands on performers and playwrights that would ensure a good reception to the presented works. That meant something that pleased a mass audience, and hence the reliance on comedy, music and drama. The Greek tradition gave them comedy and caustic jokes and satire, but neither could they afford to offend individuals in the ruling class. Playwrights adapting the Greek and creating new work had to walk a difficult path between the demands of providing popular entertainment and adhering to strict laws about defamation and slander, where a wrong word could literally cost them their liberty and even their life. Theatre had to operate in a society where there was a basic mistrust of its purpose and ambition coming from the ruling class. There were very stern voices calling for the curtailment of theatrical activities throughout the period, but also some that enjoyed the art and wanted to see its progression. In that atmosphere, a temporary stage, something agile, even ephemeral, was perhaps the only form of presentation that could survive. Playwrights who entertained rather than trying to educate, edify or radicalise an audience were the ones who were allowed to continue in their work, and those works that have survived, the plays of Plautus and Terence, provided just that. Next time we get beyond the time of Plautus and Terence and into the period where theatres became permanent buildings and that begins with the Theatre of Pompey, built in 55 BCE. How Pompey was able to get that theatre built is a fascinating story of historic battles, political intrigue and not a little deception. 
I look forward to your company next time. But in the meantime, please consider giving the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts so that other theatre folk can find us more easily. If you would like to offer me some practical support, please find me on ko-fi.com or at patreon.com, where for a small monthly fee, you can access a growing number of episodes, transcripts and additional audio episodes. At the time of publishing this episode, there are three episodes on patreon.com on the poetics, the life of Aristotle, and a look at how translations of the same passage can vary, in case you fancy diving back into the world of Greek theatre. Failing that, if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 